This is an ABC podcast. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. Thank President. You. This is America's day. This is democracy's day. A day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. Democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. Joe Biden has just become the 46th president of the United States. He has been involved in politics for almost 50 years. His twice before run from the Democratic presidential nomination and both times was defeated. Hello, this is Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince. Joe Biden was born in 1942 and has spent most of his working life in the US Senate, except for eight years as vice president in Obama's administration. What does his record in the Senate and his previous attempts at the presidency tell us about the kind of president he might make? Joe Biden often talks nostalgically about his suburban upbringing and the values that instilled in him. Through all the fights he's led and all the miles he's traveled, Joe Biden's home has never left his heart. I should know, I'm his sister. The neighborhoods we grew up in, they made Joe who he is. Biden's father for, you know, the very, very earliest part of Biden's life. Branko Machatich is the author of Yesterday's Man, the case against Joe Biden. Was able to provide a pretty good living standard for his family because he was part of his uncle's business. And that business was basically making armor plating for merchant marine vessels that would be going across the Pacific during World War II. Middle class isn't a number, it's a value set. Values that have guided Joe's entire life. They come from lessons learned growing up in Scranton, where as a young boy, Joe heard the pain in our dad's voice as he told us that to find work, our family would have to move. My dad, who fell on hard times, always told me, though, champ, when you get knocked down, get up. After the war ended, obviously, that meant the end for that business that had guaranteed prosperity for the Bidens. And so Biden's dad tried to get into a number of other business deals that didn't really go through. I I do think that part of Biden's conception uh, of the middle class being under threat does have its roots in this period in his early life where he did have an idyllic middle class upbringing for a while but it was also very precarious if things had gone slightly differently in different ways he may have been in a much worse position than he actually ended up being it is true that the place he is from scranton pennsylvania is the heart of the old blue collar mid-atlantic industrial belt It is true that his father worked in the Scranton steel mills. However, his father was a manager. He wasn't an assembly line worker or someone who was pouring steel or something. Bruce Shapiro, contributing editor to The Nation magazine and a regular commentator on Late Night Live. But still, he did grow up in a community that was heavily unionised, a community dominated by... working-class children of immigrants and grandchildren of immigrants. And he entered politics in the early 1970s in the shadow of some very big cultural struggles that in some cases left communities like Scranton feeling a little bit left behind. And I do think that's formative. On the other hand, we think of the 1960s and early 1970s, the period in which he 
first runs for office as a period of social protest and racial turmoil. Biden has talked about the impact of the civil rights movement on him. But it's also true that as a undergraduate and as a law student and then as a young attorney, he largely sidestepped those conflicts. Where the mythology comes in, I think, is him overstating the nature of his early civil rights commitments. He did become a public defender as a young attorney in Wilmington, Delaware, a town which had erupted in racial protest, but he's not someone who emerged out of the liberal activist wing of the Democratic Party. He's not someone who registered voters in the South or tried to levitate the Pentagon in 1968. He was a conventional Democratic politician. From an early age, he had talked about going into politics. And actually, he went into law school because he later admitted that this was the easiest pathway to a political career. So in that sense, he was political. But when it comes to actual issues that animated him, not really. Biden later claimed through the, the 70s and 80s, when he was an elected official, that he was a civil rights activist, that he was an anti-war activist. He always made these kind of allusions to marches that he had done and protests that he participated in. But in 1987, when he actually ran for president for the first time, reporters went looking to kind of check this stuff out, and Biden had to admit that this was all made up, that you know he had never been a civil rights protester. He had maybe done a picket outside one segregated movie theater, I think that might have been it, but for the most part, you know, he admitted himself he was just a uh, white lifeguard in a majority black swimming pool. He kind of said that, well, you know, actually he wasn't an anti-war marcher because at that point he was he was a middle-class guy, he was married, he wasn't into tie-dye shirts. This is not me, this is not me making stuff up, this is, this is a real quote from him. After law school, Biden worked for a short time as a public defender and was elected to local council. But in 1972, age 29, he had an opportunity to run for the Senate. How long is the American public going to put up with a small group of men and organizations determining the political process? But, but Senator, aren't you a living example? Of, I am an anachronist. Way? I'm a 29-year-old oddball. The only reason I was able to raise the money is I was able to have a national constituency to run for office. Because I was 29, I'm like the token black or the token woman. I was the token young person. We're talking about People now have this conception of Biden as a pretty conservative politician. Biden, in the 70s, when he ran, he actually ran a, a very you might say economically populist campaign, something that was actually more similar to what Bernie Sanders is running on now. He was 29. He was going up against a guy who was 63. And no one really wanted to, to face this guy because he was so, so well entrenched and so well liked. And Biden, I think, thought, well, you know, if nobody else is going to run against this guy, I may as well because it'll raise my, my profile. And so Biden ran on, on what would be a pretty solid New Deal platform, putting controls on prices and interest rates and, and the like. He was bashing millionaires and billion-dollar corporations who weren't paying enough tax. He wanted increases to Social Security. And, and so this, plus a kind of pretty full-throated 
opposition to American involvement in Vietnam. Biden was able to use all these things to unseat Boggs. From there on, Biden started what would end up being a 36-year career in the Senate. And when he won, he wasn't even old enough to sit in the Senate. What defined Joe Biden as a senator was really his first campaign for the Senate. He ran when he was 29 years old, and that's actually too young to be a senator. So he had to wait till he passed his 30th birthday in order to take his seat. Stephen Livingston is the author of Barack and Joe, the making of an extraordinary partnership. Soon after he got elected, it was around Christmas time, his wife, his first wife, Neela, was out trying to do some Christmas shopping and was getting a Christmas tree with the three children that they had, the two boys and the baby infant daughter, and she got into a terrible car accident and was killed. And this was a defining moment in in Joe Biden's life. He didn't know if he would become a senator. He didn't know if he could withstand the difficulty of losing his wife and his baby daughter who were killed in crash, whether he could actually become a senator and fulfill the duties that he needed to. And what happened was he decided he was talked into it actually by some old time senators like Senator Ted Kennedy and others who really wanted him to come and try and they were going to take him under their wing What happened was he kind of grew up then in the Senate. He became a senator who actually just loved the institution of the Senate, the hierarchy, the way it operated. And those senators who groomed him and nurtured him, you know, became very important to him. So the Senate became such an important thing to, to Joe Biden. That really is the definition of Joe Biden. And when he was finally elected vice president in his speech announcing that he was leaving the Senate, he told everybody that really what would always remain in his heart, even as vice president, was the time he spent in the U.S. Senate. And that is one of the things that is a theme through Biden's life. He has faced a lot of personal tragedy and setbacks, you know, his wife and his daughter dying, what should have been the high point of his life at that point. In 87, after he left the campaign in disgrace, he ended up going to the doctor and they found that he had blood clots in his brain and he very nearly died. And then, of course, in 2015, his son, one of his sons died, which is part of the reason why he didn't run for president that year. And I think it has given him this ability to empathize with people. And because of the loss that he's faced, he is able to connect with people on that level. The issue is it doesn't really translate into his his politics. His politics uh, for most of his career, and even now, even if he himself is very personally empathetic, he's never really pushed for policies that are, that are particularly empathetic. So that's one of the paradoxes, I guess, of his career. You're listening to Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince, and we're tracing the story of the Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden. Biden arrived in the Senate in 1973, just as a struggle began within the Democratic Party, between the progressive wing and the moderate or conservative wing. Despite having run on a progressive platform, once in the Senate, Biden aligned himself with the right wing of the party. Today we would call them moderate Democrats, but they really were more of the sort of the right wing of the party, coalesced into something called the Democratic Leadership Council. Uh, Joe Biden was a founding member of this. He was a young senator from a state which is the mid-Atlantic, Delaware, but which is which borders the Upper South. It's a state with a lot of finance industry, a lot of corporate presence. And Biden, from the very beginning, is embracing 
a politics that includes, on the one hand, championing of African-American neighborhoods and communities that were always part of his base, but on the other hand, speaking a lot about issues like crime, doing a lot to defend the interests of the finance industry. And those moderate instincts or, or those centrist instincts, that fear of going too far to the left, has been a very consistent theme in Biden's life, even when he does, as he does now, identify with the needs of working people and identify with people who have been left out, ignored, and all that. Throughout his career, he's interpreted that to mean, don't get too far to the left. Don't get too far ahead of the argument. Don't take social progressivism too far. That period in the 70s and 80s, the period of Nixon to Reagan, is really one of the core formative periods for the Joe Biden we see today. It bred in him a natural caution. And one of the places you saw this caution was during the debate over school busing. Many communities are struggling with the complex and highly emotional problem of busing. In 1971, Charlotte, North Carolina opened the door for busing across the country, forcing the nation to confront a history of old prejudices. His view, and it was, to be fair to Biden, a widely held view on the conservative side of the Democratic Party, was that if federal courts are given too much authority to force, to impose busing on white working class communities. It will only accelerate racism. It will make things worse. And this was better decided by local communities. The problem with that was, of course, that these are the same local communities that had perpetuated de facto segregation, even outside the officially segregated South. But in cities like Wilmington or cities like Boston or cities like Philadelphia, segregation had gotten worse through the 1960s and as, as there was white flight to the suburbs. And you were n simply never going to get there without robust court intervention. And this positioned Biden on the right of the Democratic Party. And again, though, it's a complex legacy because he also supported voting rights legislation, supported some other key civil rights legislation. But it's an example of that deep caution. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing. By the 80s and 90s, he was a fiscal conservative, pushing for balanced budgets and cutting government programs. Spending remained a big part of it, keeping government spending down and keeping deficits low. When Reagan is elected, Biden said, you know, well, Reagan's election actually fits with the kind of budgetary thrust that I've been moving in. So by 81, when Reagan comes in, Biden first votes for Reagan's big tax cut, which was the thing that Reagan had run on. Tax cut is mostly for, for the very richest. And that, of course, adds to significantly to the deficit. And then Reagan points at the deficit. And he says, well, now we have to cut spending because the deficit is out of control. And so he puts forward this budget. And Biden and I believe 30 other Democrats vote for that budget. This is noted at the time by a paper like the Washington Post and the New York Times. They say this budget is kind of a landmark, signals a reversal of politics away from that kind of liberal, you know, progressive 
direction that had been in to a more conservative, neoliberal one. Then there was Biden's signature issue, crime. You must take back the streets. And you take back the streets by more cops, more prisons, more physical protection for the people. In the late 70s, Biden left the banking committee to go to the Judiciary Committee because, and this is his own words, he said the issues of crime and busing are bigger issues for Delaware. And so one of the things he does through the 80s is have this focus on attacking crime and attacking drugs through really harsh, punitive policies. He teams up with Strom Thurmond, who's this former segregationist and basically rewrites the criminal code. He basically eliminates parole and at the same time puts in place mandatory minimum sentences, which basically takes away discretion from judges, says, you know, if you commit this kind of crime, this is the minimum amount that you have to serve. You know, it's one of the reasons why the U.S. even now has the worst, the, the biggest prison population in the entire world, even more than, you know, places like China. In the 80s as well, he starts to turn right on foreign policy. So where he had once been a, a dove in Vietnam and, and used that to win the election against Boggs, because of Reagan's election, he says to the Democrats, we can't have this peacenik approach anymore because people just don't take us seriously on foreign policy. We have to move closer where Reagan is. We have to be willing to use force. He backed several military actions throughout the 80s and the 90s, including Bush's bombing of Panama and Reagan's invasion of Grenada. And he opposed the Iraq war, to his credit, the first Iraq war, but then sort of changed his mind once he saw that it was a success politically for Bush. And he says, you know, I was wrong. And then for the rest of the 90s, he ends up pushing for U.S. military intervention. So I think those are probably the, the three biggest areas, cutting spending and cutting the budget, moving into a more aggressive position on foreign policy and focusing on really punitive, often extreme measures on criminal justice. In June 1987, Joe Biden announced he was seeking the Democratic nomination for the presidency. But this standard is not a measure of how we can evaluate the condition of our society, cannot measure the health of our children, the quality of our education, the joy of their play. This is how it sounded when Robert Kennedy said those words in 1968. If the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play, Biden gave Kennedy no credit. He has also quoted or paraphrased John Kennedy, Hubert Humphrey, and British Labour Party leader Neil Kinnock, all without credit. The plagiarism allegation led to Biden withdrawing from the race in 1987. He nominated again in 2007. This time, his campaign was marred by several odd comments and his failure to attract significant support. He dropped out of the race in January 2008 after capturing less than 1% of the vote in the Iowa caucus. Biden has had several consistent problems. First of all, let's remember that although he won his Senate seat in 1972 by defeating an incumbent Republican, other than that, he has never won a tough race in his life. His Senate elections were pro forma. He's immensely popular in his own state. He never had a serious challenger. So he actually isn't all that great on the stump. He's not a naturally shrewd campaigner. He has a very serious case of, of hoof and mouth disease. He was consistently outgunned and outmatched in the Democratic primaries by candidates who were either more visionary or more tactically gifted. 
or simply tougher. Then in 2008, Barack Obama selected Joe Biden as his running mate. Let me introduce to you the next vice president of the United States of America, Joe Biden. Uh, Obama had to start thinking about who was going to be his running mate. And he had a list and he had people put together lists for him. But oddly, I found in my research that Joe Biden was always at the top of that list. And part of the reason, or, or a good part of the reason, was that Biden provided a sense of experience, experience with Congress and the ability to work with Congress, which was essential for any president coming in, especially a freshman senator who is now becoming a president who didn't have a lot of experience in the Senate. Biden was perfect for that. And he also really respected Biden's foreign affairs expertise. Once they were in office, did Obama and Biden work well together? I think they definitely did. And that was, you know, a lot to Obama's credit that he he knew what he had in Joe and he let Joe be Joe. Some of his, his closest friends told me his role as vice president, he understood it very well, even though as a senator, he was always the top dog. He never had a boss or anything. But as a vice president, he had a boss. He had to answer to Obama. He had to follow Obama's lead. But Biden is also, he said this himself, he's a very good Catholic and he understands the hierarchy. He understood the hierarchy in the Senate and he appreciated that. And he understood the hierarchy as president and vice president. And so he acceded to the will of the president and affected his plans and implemented his policies the best as he could because he knew that that's what his job was. According to Theodore Johnson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Centre for Justice, despite Joe Biden's conservative record in the Senate, it was the loyalty he showed President Obama that secured him the support of African Americans. It is absolutely true that in the 1970s, he opposed busing and school integration, and he preferred that it be left, that be a matter left to local communities and, and the, that the federal government stay out of it. And frankly, that's what a lot of white segregationists, that was the view they also held about busing to make it a local matter and not a federal one. He was very tough on Anita Hill, a black woman who had accused Clarence Thomas, the current black Supreme Court justice of sexual harassment in the 80s. In the 1990s, he supported the 1994 crime bill, a tough on crime legislation that ended up in the construction of tons of prisons, the increase in law enforcement and police forces across the country, which in turn led to a disproportionate number of black men in particular being locked up in federal and state prisons. And all of those things are things that black voters today recognize and aren't particularly fond of, but they are pragmatic in the sense that those are less important to today than Biden being trustworthy enough in the eyes of the first black president to name him his running mate and for Biden's perceived ability to be best suited to defeat Donald Trump in the current election. Barack Obama is an extraordinary man. He was a president our children could and did look up to. In the eight years that he was Barack Obama's vice president, he did absolutely nothing to undermine the president's authority to harm his reputation. And so the fact that he was a trustworthy and reliable number two 
is more important because in a position that Biden was in where he had much deeper relationships with Republicans and Democrats across the legislative branch, he could have used those to his personal advantage and undermine Barack Obama in the process. But instead, he sort of stood faithfully by Obama for those entire eight years. And whatever President Obama asked of him, he was eager to do. And I think that his ability to play that part faithfully and do everything he could to ensure the Obama presidency was successful and defend him, that's why black voters in this current election cycle have given him their trust more than they have given to any of the other candidates that were running. The math suggests that Biden or any of this year's Democratic nominees could have beaten Trump. If turnout in suburbs among unaffiliated voters and women who have never been at the heart of the Trump coalition, if they will go to a Democratic candidate, and as of now, the polls show them going that way, the path for a Democratic victory is pretty clear in a high turnout election. That's why you've got all this Republican interest in voter suppression, because Trump's chances improve in states if we keep those kind of suburban and inner city minority turnouts lower. Polling today suggests that he's ahead of Trump beyond the margin of error for the polling. But frankly, Hillary Clinton had very similar numbers four years ago. The real question is, in those states that will determine the outcome of the election, is Biden better positioned to win those states? Here is where black voters can come into play. Hillary Clinton lost the White House in 2016. Even though she won the popular vote by about 3 million, she lost the Electoral College by about 77,000 votes over three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Now, in each of those three states, you have large urban metro areas that have large black populations. And black voter turnout, the number of black Americans who participated in the 2016 election, was 59.6%, which was seven points lower than the rate of black voters that participated in the 2012 election. So Hillary Clinton lost the election for a number of reasons. One of those reasons was she was unable to inspire black voters to participate in this election. Biden will have to absolutely center the ability to inspire black voters to turn out, to increase the voter participation rate over 2016. And if he's able to do that, he has a very good shot at winning the election. He definitely does dominate among black voters, for sure, but it also tends to be older black voters. One poll done by ABC found that he has the lowest enthusiasm among his own supporters of any Democrat candidate in the last 20 years. He hasn't really faced scrutiny for things like the family corruption that surrounds him. His brother right now is in court being accused of fraud. That hasn't really gone that much media coverage outside of conservative media. And same with the sexual assault allegation. That's actually a very credible allegation. And the woman has filed a criminal complaint and a false criminal complaint can land her in jail. So, you know, she's very much serious about this. And you can expect all of those things to be kind of used to hit Biden's character in the months ahead. And look, just finally, if he, if he does win, if he does beat Trump, what kind of a president do you think he's likely to make? First of all, he does have a personal decency that will immediately change the tone and tenor of American politics. 
he is also someone who is persuadable. He's not an ideologue. So I think he'll be a president who is open to renegotiating the American social contract, but naturally cautious. Biden himself has told donors that under him, nothing would fundamentally change. He realizes he has a big problem with young people, the people who are supporting Sanders. So he's now saying, I'm going to be the most progressive president since FDR. I mean, look, again, anything is possible, but nothing in Biden's history, nor the kind of voter demographics he's courting, nor where he's getting his money from, none of that really points to the idea that he would be the kind of transformational president that Roosevelt was. Even if he does make some commitments to policy, I think the the thing that will really tell us what kind of president he would be is really defined by who he picks to run his administration. We don't know who that is yet, but that's going to be the key thing. Branko Marcetic, author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. My other guests, Bruce Shapiro, contributing editor to The Nation magazine and a regular commentator on Late Night Live. Stephen Livingston, author of Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership, and Theodore Johnson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Centre for Justice. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.